Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. This episode will be a little different from what we've done so far on the show. If you follow me on Instagram, you might know that I'm currently in the process of moving continents. And as I'm sure you can imagine, that's an incredibly stressful, busy, uh, chaotic time. This episode is just going to be me rambling. Um, I hope you enjoy it anyway. I wanted to drop a quick episode here. First of all, to say huge thank you. I started Hornblow Fire, the Instagram page, on December 21st, 2020. So we are coming up to its first birthday. If you're interested and you don't feel like scrolling all the way back, the first post I made was Jacob's Ladder, which I'm going to start dubbing a Christmas movie because it is set in and around Christmas and there is a guy in a Santa suit in it. So it's a Christmas movie. This past year making the Instagram has just been such a fantastic experience. I've gotten to virtually meet some of the most amazing, kind, funny, smart people. And I really hope I can meet some of you in person one day. But yeah, just becoming part of this amazing community of people who enjoy horror movies and want to talk about them and just hang out together online. It's just been so fun. I wanted to write since I was like, I don't know, 13 I studied English at university, so that was my major. And I always, um, the parts I always did best in were the creative writing parts. But for so long, I never did anything with writing. I've never pursued it in any, you know, official capacity. I was saying to myself for years, like, oh, I should start a blog. I should start writing articles or essays and things like that. And I just never got around to it. So starting the Instagram was really a way for me to kind of get my writing out there. And I hope you've enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast, then I'm hoping that you've enjoyed some of my writing on Instagram. This year, I've been lucky enough to have my writing published, you know, with some indie mags online who I'm so grateful to, and sharing it with all of you guys. I just want to say thank you to every one of you who has ever interacted with my writing on Instagram or liked one of my pictures or even, or of course, listen to this podcast because I originally did not set out to make this podcast. A podcast was something I never thought I would um, make, mostly because, as I've said before, I don't really like the sound of my own voice, but you guys have just been so amazingly supportive and kind and um, I've just got gotten to chat with some amazing people and there are some amazing guests coming on in the next year. Sorry if I'm gushing. It's just kind of emotional. Like um, it's just so lovely to, to feel like you're part of something like a community like this. And I, I've just had so much love and support and I don't know what next year holds for Hornblow Fire and the podcast, but all I know is that I I started something that I loved doing this year and I will always cherish it. And yeah, thank you so much for being a part of it with me. So as we're nearing the end of 2021, I wanted to drop a little episode before the end of the year to talk about some of the films that I've loved this year, some of my personal favorites. I know a lot of people have said 2021 hasn't been a, great year for horror i i would say it has i mean obviously it's not been a great year for any creative industry we've been dealing with a pandemic for the last two years so a lot of movies have been delayed or cancelled ones that we thought were going to come out in 2019 actually ended up released this year so with that in mind some of these films may have been released on the festival circuit or filmed in 2019 
if they were released may in a mainstream capacity this year, I will be counting it as a 2021 film. There are a couple of movies that I was desperate to see this year that I unfortunately just didn't get around to. I just haven't had time. So um, I probably will be kicking myself in a few months for not including something that I love. As of right now, this is the 10 movies that I love most this year. They are not in chronological order. Some of them I did love more than others. I'm sure you'll be able to tell from the tone of my voice when I talk about them. There will be spoilers for each of the movies mentioned. If you haven't seen any, I will list the time slots of the movies in the show notes. And if you haven't seen that movie yet, feel free to skip it. Come back to it at a later date. Let's talk about it when it's released. Let's um, give me a comment. Let me know your favorite movies of 2021. Keep an eye out for what's coming in 2022. I'm so excited to share the next episodes with you. And yeah, thank you again always. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas if you do celebrate. And regardless of what you celebrate, I hope you have a relaxing and safe winter holiday. Eat some delicious food, catch up with some loved ones if you can, or just hang out at home and watch horrible, horrible scary movies, which uh, is something I'm very much looking forward to. Thanks always for listening and enjoy. Let me guide you out of the woods. So I'm going to start off this list with a film that I knew I was going to love. Um, In the Earth by director Ben Wheatley. In the Earth was one of my most anticipated releases of the year. Even before I knew I had seen it, I knew I was going to love it. I'm a guaranteed fan of any horror movie that's set in the woods, among trees, in the dirt, in the earth, as the title suggests. Throw in some folk horror and some psychedelics and there's no way I wasn't going to love this film. So In the Earth follows two scientists, Martin and Alma, who are living in a kind of um, post-disease-ridden world. It's a world that's been devastated by a virus, which, you know, come on, how, how could you not put this movie on a best of 21 list? Because it is, it's a movie that was born from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a very dystopian and bleak view of what potentially could have happened. The pair of them are sent into the woods um, to find out what happened to another scientist and to kind of get a grip on this unusually fertile area of land. Another reason why I love this movie is it's about like nature taking hold and coming back. And, you know, it kind of reminds you that rather depressingly, after humanity has gone, nature will always um, come back and find a way to thrive again. Now, this is a film that filled me with like genuine nausea, like I felt very ill at times when I was watching this movie it was it's got this kind of um washed out sickliness to it um I don't know if you've had this experience maybe you have but if you've ever been to a a music festival in the summer you might have taken a bit too much too early and you end up feeling dehydrated and strung out for the rest of the day just like lounging in um, dry grass and uh, kind of half um, hallucinating or kind of not being fully with it. It gave me that feeling. Uh, visually, it's a very exciting film. I know a couple of people um, did not love it because it, it has a lot of strobing, it has a lot of flashing. If you haven't seen it, please do just be wary of that. It does um, go to some very visually uh, overstimulating places at times. For me, I love that. I love a movie that you know, blows the synapses out of my brain, blows my corneas apart. I wrote about this in my review for In the Earth, but something I love about the film 
and director Ben Wheatley is that he is so great at capturing uh, the British experience. His uh, his other favorite film of mine, Kill List, has this amazing dark British sense of humor to it, which. If you're from the UK, as I am, then you will find it very, very funny because it's just, it's, these are people that you probably know in and around your neighborhood. And In the Earth is exactly the same. One of my favorite scenes in In the Earth is where Martin is about to get his foot hacked off. And just the way that he like, he's trying to deal with it. He's like, there's this crazy guy trying to hack his foot off and he's like oh no honestly mate no no don't worry mate it's fine it's fine and it's just like this very British way of politely declining something but in your head you're like oh my god fuck off leave me alone I also love seeing Elora Torchia in a starring role I always thought in uh Midsummer she had a tiny role as Connie I believe her name was I always wished that we had seen more of her character's death you know we saw some great deaths in midsummer lots of face smashing lots of burning but the death that we didn't see on the screen was the death of the the british couple connie and uh simon i believe the other guy's name was we do see connie's um well we see everyone's corpse but we do see Connie's waterlogged corpse come in at the end. I thought that was a particularly gross moment. And if you've seen the director's cut of Midsummer, you will see it, they kind of do go into a bit more uh, detail about the uh, water ritual that the Horga, that they perform. I thought Alora Torchia was great in Midsummer, even if she was on screen for a tiny amount of time. And I love seeing her in a starring role. The soundtrack for In the Earth is also fantastic. It was actually on one of it was one of my top ten um, most listened to albums this year. The soundtrack it was uh, performed by Clint Manzel, who has worked with Darren Aronofsky many times. Um, I also really loved his soundtrack for Black Swan. So, yeah, if you if you have seen In the Earth, I really recommend taking a listen to this. The OST by itself, it's this really like pulsing psyche electro exactly like the film uh, it's great studying music it's great writing music it's also music that might fa make you feel a bit ill like i said there's in the earth has this whole like druggy nauseous quality to it um a great movie i really recommend it if you like folk horror if you like anything that borders on the more trippy side of things check out in the earth because i haven't seen it get as much love as i think it deserves and yeah i'd love to see more people chatting about this one So the second film I would like to talk about is Evangelion 3 plus 1, Thrice Upon a Time from director Hideaki Anno. So where to start with uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion? Neon Genesis Evangelion is not a horror in the traditional sense, um, but it is one of the most existentially disturbing experiences I personally have ever had. You know, I'm not going to get into the, the lore of Evangelion too much because we will be here all day. And can I be perfectly honest, there's parts of it I still don't understand. And from speaking with other Evangelion fans, I'm not alone in that. 
What I love about Evangelion, the series and the films, is that it speaks so purely to the human experience, despite being, you know, set in this science fiction world that's like light years away from the humanity that we know. It is set in a dystopian future and, you know, there are giant mechas, walking robots, there are angels, but it is so human in its emotions and in its characters. Every single character in Evangelion is like painfully relatable. Shinji Ikari, even though he's a pubescent Japanese boy, he is a character that I think we can all relate to. He's this mess of insecurity, uh, vulnerability, anxiety. And then you have Asuka Langley, who is the character of like rage incarnate. She's like a walking wound. She can't effectively heal. And then Ayanami Rei, who I think we can all think of a time where we've kind of felt like we have no control over ourselves and that we're kind of being used as a as a blank slate for others to project themselves on. I also personally love how Evangelion focuses on female characters and, you know, let's be honest, anime doesn't have the greatest reputation when it comes to representation of women, especially younger women, let's be perfectly honest. But Evangelion, even though it is some sometimes, you know, you think, oh, do I really need to see this 14-year-old girl naked? Definitely not. But, you know, Let's put that aside and remember it's still an anime. The women in Evangelion are so well-rounded and they're so far from being shallow archetypes. Even though they are parts of Shinji's psyche, they never feel like devices for him to figure his stuff out. They all have their own issues that they're dealing with. They all have their own goals. They all have their own shit that they need to sort out. So Evangelion Thrice Upon a Time is a film that if you know anything about Evangelion, you'll know that it is a series that is so intrinsically linked to Anor's mental state and his own struggle with clinical depression. And that's why he has made so many of these films that really focus on loneliness, suffering, exhaustion. I really thought Thrice Upon a Time felt like a recovery. A recovery from a deep depression where you're finally getting out of it. There's this lingering sadness, but there's also this light at the end of the tunnel. In Thrice Upon a Time, we see Shinji finally get to live his life as an adult, free from the Eva, free from his father, free from the human instrumentality project. He finally gets to break out of this time loop and just live. And the final scene of him um, running up the steps as, you know, he's an adult now. He's finally broken out of the time loop where he is one of the children it just felt really really hopeful but also melancholic and I really loved that about it Thrice Upon a Time also gave me my, my favorite pop song of the year Hikaru Utada's One Last Kiss which plays it over the end of the film and it's um, a great little j-pop song it's um, so dreamy it's beautiful it's equal parts hopeful and melancholic that's just like Evangelion So the next film I would like to talk about is The Medium. I am a complete sucker for any horror that's based around folklore, ritual, um, religion, especially if it is set in an Asian country. Um, I just love that. I love learning about ghost stories and, you know, folk tales from places that I could only dream of going to. I obviously I love and adore Korean horror. 
I'm not hugely well versed with Thai horror, except of course Shutter, um, which is arguably one of the most famous Thai horror movies. So when I heard that Pisantana Kun's his new film was being produced by Na Hongjin, who also directed The Wailing, when I heard that these two directors were working together on a new film, I was so excited. Um, Na Hongjin producing the film and having writing credits and Pisantana Kun directing, I just knew I was not going to be disappointed. So the medium is a long one. It is well over two hours long. I'm think off the top of my head, I think it's about two and a half hours long. But there was not a single moment in the medium where I felt bored or restless. In fact, it kind of took me back to my my roots of horror. Um, one of my favorite favorite genres, maybe my favorite genre, and the genre that got me into horror is the uh, the classic like early two thousands J horrors. And the medium really reminded me of those. It has, you know, obviously we've got the Onryo style ghosts with stringy black hair over her face and these uncanny twisted movements. The medium has, again, something that's really important to me is a really strong cast of female characters. The medium herself is a character called Nim and she is just just a great character. She has so much compassion and love in her. And it's so clear that she, all she wants to do is help people. Nim has this spirit said to dwell inside of her called Bayan. And it's also what I loved about the medium is how much love you could tell Nim has for Bayan. It got me thinking about how in Western horror movies, the idea of a spirit living inside someone's body would be, you know, cause for an exorcism or it would be the main um, antagonist of the movie. But in the medium, Bayan, the spirit of Bayan is kind of seen as a, a positive thing. Another thing I loved about the medium, this exploration of Christianity and traditional religion in the wailing we see it with the korean shamanism and then in uh the medium we see it obviously with thai religious beliefs uh, versus christianity and um i love that both movies kind of explore finding a happy medium excuse the pun <laughs> finding a happy medium between two pretty contrasting belief systems and figuring out if they can live side by side i won't go into that too much more because uh, i want you to listen to the wailing podcast but it is something that i really am interested in the end of the medium was just so devastatingly sad so at the end we kind of find well nim dies first of all the the titular medium dies and that's another thing i'm, I'm always going on about how i love this in asian horror is that directors are not afraid to pull punches you would never see that in like a, in an american horror they would never kill off their main character so you know with still so much of the film left like she she dies and we still have like a good um a 40 minutes left or something but at the end of the film we see over the credits we see an interview with nim who is very tearful having this kind of realization within herself that she's not even sure if bayan lives inside her and it's it's really sad to watch this woman come to terms with something that she's known and loved for her whole life and to realize that it it may have all not been real and it's kind of a nice exploration of you know well is faith enough one year hence.
The next film I would like to talk about today is The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry. Again, I am not sure if I would class this as a traditional horror movie, Um, although it does have that very, you know, very specific A24 kind of dread to it. There are moments that I guess you could consider scary when the Green Knight um, comes to Camelot in the first place. And, you know, uh, we've got we've got ghosts, we've got beheadings, we've got some, uh, we've got a fair few dead bodies throughout. And yeah, we've just got this oppressive, bleak tension that David Lowry has proved that he's really good at if you haven't seen a ghost story that's also a very good that's a, a good slow burn if you want to check that out so having come from a celtic background the story of garwin wasn't entirely unfamiliar to me i uh i knew about it from school but i never thought it is something that could be like accurately or faithfully brought to the screen um without maybe you know looking a little bit kind of hokey the idea of just like this green man uh, luckily, the green man that we get is a gorgeous, creaky tree of a man played by um, Ralph Innocent, who between this and The Witch, I've just about managed to stop seeing him as Chris Finch from uh, The Office, the original Office, not the American one. And he is just fantastic. He's got, you know, he's got this booming voice. He's got a very commanding presence. He demands that you look at him. And even though he's only in, what, two scenes in The Green Knight, he's just, he just makes the whole thing. He's not as good and gorgeous as Dev Patel, though. Dev Patel is just astounding as Gowan. Um, I saw this hilarious post on Twitter. Um, I'll just read it now because it really made me laugh. So it's, um, oh, sorry, it's actually a Tumblr post by a user called Sad Clown Central, my life. Um, anyway, it goes like this. What I need you to know about the Green Knight is that Gawain is the best main character in the world. Stupid as shit. Not a single good or even decent decision in sight. Absolute train wreck of a man. Doesn't know how to make a bonfire or defend himself against anything or anyone. Always wet for some reason. <laughs> Lost and confused the majority of his screen time. Life throws all these challenges at him and he just fucks up every single one of them. No redeeming qualities. Worst night I've ever seen. All this man has going for him is his dazzling cape and the fact that everyone feels the overwhelming urge to cradle his face gently. I'm so in love with him. So sad clown central if you ever listen to this. Thank you for summing up the character of Gowan so perfectly because he is constantly wet. Dev Patel's got this gorgeous little like puppy face on him where you just feel like, oh, this guy is useless. Which is actually very faithful to the character of Gowan. Um, if you're not f- hugely familiar with the story, uh, it's a story... I mean, it's about hundreds of things, but one of the themes of the original 14th century poem is human imperfection and um, uh, cowardice and finding the strength to courageously face up to your mistakes with dignity and honor and it's about Gawain's journey as he he acts on this egotistical impulse to want to you know show off his um, masculine skills in the court of Camelot and then he finds himself regretting it immediately. Also the Green Knight is canonically a christmas movie it is set on christmas day in king arthur's court from here on out i want to see the green knight on all your christmas movie lists Her eyes were clear and bright, but she's not there.
So the next film I would like to talk about is Titan by uh, Julie de Cournot. Where the hell do I start with Titan? This has been on the tips of everyone's tongue since it was released. I have I have seen countless, countless takes, posts, reviews, essays, all about this film. I have to be honest, before I saw it, I was kind of nervous because sometimes you get a film like this that is so that causes so many waves and ripples within the horror community that sometimes it can be difficult for that film to live up to the hype around it. But Titan absolutely lives up to it and more. So I, um, of course, have already spoken about Raw um, a couple of times on this podcast and on my friend Joel's podcast at No Stranger to Horror, which um, if you haven't listened to, please do go and check it out because we get really deep into the the lore of Raw, as it were. So I knew that uh, Julia DeCono is a director with a hugely promising future ahead of her. I was so excited to see what came next and Tatan just did not let me down in any way. This is a monumental piece of feminist filmmaking. It is, and not just because it has a female director, because I think a lot of the time female horror, or not even horror directors, female directors get kind of, um, anything they make has this kind of lens of feminism on it, even if it's not necessarily meant to. That's just the way, the world that we live in. We have so few female directors. Almost any action that comes from those women is is painted as feminist just by the fact that they're women who exist in an industry that is so, so overwhelmingly male. So not all films directed by women are feminist. I, I certainly think Titan is. I really do. Not only feminist, I think Titan is a love letter to genderfuck. And it's a, you know, it's a scathing take on the performance of gender, specifically the performance of femininity as costume. Here is a movie that is not afraid at all. Here is a movie that is unapologetically unafraid to be ugly. Now, let me explain what I mean by that a little bit more. Tadan is not afraid to show women in a state of ugliness. And this is not to say that Agatha Roussel is not beautiful because she absolutely is. She is a stunning, gorgeous woman. Um, I can't believe this is, I think this was her first, her first movie credit, um, which, you know, to come out of the of non-acting with this is just amazing. First things first, she's gorgeous. She's a model. She's beautiful. But what I love about this movie is it, there are points where I'm saying this from the lens of a patriarchal society. There are points when this character, Alexia, is quote unquote ugly. She, this is a movie that's not afraid to show women refusing to pander to the male gaze. Here is a woman who no longer wishes to perform femininity anymore. And so she starts to perform masculinity. And to a lot of, I guess, you know, straight men, that is quote unquote ugly. She shaves her head. She breaks her nose. She doesn't wear makeup anymore. She binds every every part of herself that might be feminine. That's not to say Tatan isn't sexy. It's sexy as hell. You know, we've got that amazing opening scene with the girls dancing on the cars it just oozes sex and sexuality, but it's not from where you might expect it to come from. There's not this like cosmetically crafted sex that is created specifically for straight male audiences. Yes, there are strippers at the beginning, but um, like I said, Alexia soon strips off that costume and begins to perform a different gender role. The biggest cheerleaders I have seen for Tatan were women and um, LGBT folk. 
because it's a movie for those who have felt prisoners in their body, violated by their body, like their body has been trussed up and forced to perform a role that they don't necessarily feel comfortable with. It's also a fucking sad movie, but it's also a beautiful movie. It's a movie about love and trust and loyalty and unconditional love in the face of some of the creepiest Cronenberg-esque body horror that we've seen in a long time. It is a fantastic movie that subverts every role you could imagine. Yeah, it deserves every award and every accolade it got. Julia de Corneau is really a titan excuse the pun of filmmaking and in sports news ohio state plays the indiana hoosiers tomorrow night good luck to our buckeyes i'm holly marciano channel six news hail rodma The next film I'd like to talk about is VHS 94 by uh, various directors. What I appreciate most about VHS 94 is that it was fun. And I think in 2021, we had a lot of pretty heavy horrors, um, a lot of horrors that have heavy sociopolitical meanings, things like that. And VHS was fun. And sometimes you just need something like that to blow off steam. Now, I am an absolute sucker for two things in horror anthologies and found footage so naturally as you can imagine i love the other vhs movies even if some of them suck some of the short standalones i'm not going to name which ones because that's mean but i do think a few of them are quite weak but some of my favorite standalone shorts have come from the vhs franchise as i'm sure is everyone's favorite safe haven by timo janjanto and amateur night from david bruckner i think vhs 94 is possibly the strongest selection of shorts in the franchise so we start off with Chloe Okuno's Storm Drain, which gave the horror community uh, a new, what I like to call, a cool fucked up guy in the form of Ratma. We also had Gabriel from Malignant, who was a cool fucked up guy. But um, yeah, Ratma is is a cool fucked up guy. Everyone loves Ratma. Uh, Storm Drain had some amazing practical effects. For immediately from the get-go, it just breathed a new life into a franchise that had maybe gotten pretty stale. Even if you don't love found footage, you can't not love Storm Drain because who doesn't love a fucked up guy? The Empty Wake is genuinely very creepy. I love the visual of a man just missing half of the top of his head. Again, um, not sure how. I think I saw on Instagram that that was practical effects. Incredibly impressive. And then we get the subject, which is from Timo Jajanto, again, who is just proving himself to be a master of body horror. So the subject has this kind of Tetsuo cyberpunk homage and this like horrifically dystopian idea of being meshed with a machine without your consent and your form being so alien to you, not human enough to exist in in normal society anymore, but also not machine enough to just be destroyed without empathy. Personally, that's kind of a nightmare. Imagine waking up in a lab and like half of you is, is a, a camera or whatever. <laughs> like, and just being trapped in this existence where you're not, you're not far enough removed from humanity to just cease to exist, but you're far enough removed that you're not a person anymore. Shishanto is like, a, like I said, he's a new master of body horror and gore. I'm not in love with the idea of him remaking Train to Busan, but if anyone can make it horrible, it's him. I'm very excited to see what he does with it. I've salvaged the tug of war with the intestines. I've kept in most of the screwdriver stuff. And I've only trimmed the tiniest bit of the end of the genitals. 
but some things should be left to the imagination. So next, I chose Censor by um, the director Prano Bailey Bond as my next choice for the my favorite movies this year. 2021 was a really exciting year for women in horror, both in front of the camera, behind the camera, and even as we're in the, end, the tail end of 2021, uh, there's still so much more exciting things coming forward, even as we go into 2022 for women in horror. Now, it shouldn't be the case at all, but uh, like I said earlier, female directors in horror are so rare. We're finding out more and more, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, that women are driving forces in the horror community. There's finally a space for women to to tell their own stories. So, so much of horror history, we've seen women directed by men. We've seen women's stories told by men. And it's time to, it's time to take that back. And I think we're at a place now where we're getting there. With that in mind, Sensor is just a powerhouse of a debut. It is stylistically stunning. Sensor managed to transport me to a time that I wasn't even alive for. I was born in uh, England in the early 90s, which was just past the height of the video nasty era, which was in um, like the mid to late 80s. So I wasn't alive for that, but um, I, I saw echoes of it growing up. I remember hearing about how Child's Play and Chucky was apparently to blame for a series of like disgusting child murders. And I remember seeing uh, VHS covers in my local video store that could well be one of the movies that Enid cuts in Sansa. It just has this gorgeous look to it. I know, I know that a lot of people are kind of a bit fed up with the 80s revival thing now, me included. We kind of got a bit sick of that. But I think Sansa has a really new interesting take on it because and of course, I'm probably biased here, but it's very British. And I think a lot of British viewers have seen all this 80s America's Americana and it doesn't really resonate with a lot of us because we weren't around for it. We weren't, we weren't living there. But Censor takes us back to 80s Britain, which um, is, is a time I'd love to see in more horror movies. I think Censor would make a fantastic double feature with Barbarian Sound Studio by Peter Strickland. So yeah, that's another thing I loved about Censor. I love the character of Enid. I love how you can tell this is a woman who is on the edge of breaking down, who's barely holding it together and is in this line of work where she has to watch the most traumatic images. She's kind of so desensitized to them, which is so funny. It's such a contrast from how she looks visually. You know, she's got her hair up, she's got her glasses, she's got her like librarian outfit on. And um, yeah, I just love her. I think she's a great character. The last few moments of Censor are really great, really creepy. Um... Just a great film, really like Senator. Who is this? I need you to leave me alone. The next film I wanted to talk about was The Vigil by um, Keith Thomas, another incredibly strong directorial debut. The Vigil was a very, very, very genuinely creepy movie. I mean, what's creepier than, first of all, the simplicity of just a dead body and um, then having to spend the night alone in a creepy house? Um, I thought The Vigil was really, really sad. It has this Holocaust background to it which is of course appallingly sad but it's also um some of the films i find saddest are films where the character has not healthily dealt with a trauma in their life and so you know it, it goes the vigil goes explores this in more detail by a 
a spirit that latches onto a, you know, quote unquote, broken person. I've always enjoyed exploring that in horror because it is something that, um, you know, we've all been through, hopefully not as horrific as some of the things in these movies, but we have all been through things and not known how to deal with them in the best way. And sometimes that can manifest itself in very scary, very sad situations. I also loved the vigil because I think for anyone growing up in the West, the kind of horrors that we're exposed to are traditionally ones that focus on Christian mythology, you know, God, devil, Jesus, um, demons, etc., uh, etc. Et but the vigil explores parts of Jewish mythology that I personally didn't know about. And I know, you know, obviously I'm not an expert in by any means, but I know the idea of hell and heaven is very different in Jewish mythology. So to explore that in horror is really interesting, I think, especially when we're all a bit burnt out from, you know, like the power of Christ compels you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed the vigil. It is very creepy. There's always things lurking around the corner and um, most of it is in silence. It's it's very much one character um, based Um the character of Ronan is really tragic and he sees some pretty horrible things in the house. A very good film. Not one I've seen too many people talk about, which I think is probably because it was initially released in 2019. But yeah, a, a really good one. But the first one, where it all began, was in the 1890s. It's the story Helen found, the story of Daniel Robitaille. He made a good living touring the country painting portraits for wealthy families, mostly white. And they loved But you know how it goes. They love what we make, but not us. Next, I'd like to talk about Candyman by Naya Da Costa. Another amazing directorial debut. This has been a great year for first-time directors. Now, um, one thing I want to get out of the way is I saw so much discourse around this movie uh, that I think is undeserved. I saw a lot of vitriol, a lot of hate for Candyman and... Now, I've said this before, how female directors are unfairly held to a higher standard by the film industry and the audiences, especially women of color. I saw a lot of people who were furious, you know, gnashing their teeth like, Candyman doesn't need a sequel, it doesn't need a remake or a reboot or whatever. These are the same people who went out and, you know, were first in line to get their tickets to Halloween Kills. So, you know, come on, ask yourself... If you were so furious about the remake of Candyman, but you enjoy all those Halloween, Friday the 13th, whatever, reboots, remakes, whatever, why were you so furious about Candyman? Now, Candyman is a story that deserves to be told by a black filmmaker, and I'm very happy that it finally got the chance to be told by Naya Da Costa. Um, I, don't get me wrong, I love Bernard Rose's original, but there were moments in it that were pretty firmly in the category of white saviorism. Whether that's intentional or not, I think it's a theme that should be explored by the communities who that victimizes. Anyone who disliked Candyman on the premise that it was quote unquote too woke clearly like never saw or either they never saw it or they dangerously misunderstood the original. Candyman is and always has been a story based on the socio-political effects of racism, poverty and discrimination. Even when it was directed by a white director, it was still about those things. Socio sociology aside, Candyman 2021 was really gorgeous, first of all. I thought it was really, um, the lighting, the cinematography, it was, I'm a real sucker for like a, a shot. I don't know the technical term for it. I didn't go to film school. But when the camera like flips upside down, um, I love that. And 
the soundtrack was really marvelous as well. Uh, it might not be the scariest movie in the world. Uh, there were a couple of moments where I was like actively disgusted. Um, I have trypophobia, which is, um, if you don't know, don't Google it because you might have it. And the images are pretty disgusting anyway. So it's a fear of like tiny small holes. And if you've seen Candyman, you'll know exactly the scene I'm talking about. Um, it's uh, skin that is honeycombed, uh, repulsed me. Yahya Abdul-Matin did a fantastic job. You know, I would watch him read a phone book and I'd be happy about that. Um, but I thought he was a really strong character. Watching his descent into this madness of um, the Candyman mythos and, you know, the further into it he went, the further he found himself, he lost himself in the story. And, you know, seeing Tony Todd on screen is just like a shot of dopamine to the heart. He's just a, a, a fantastic presence on screen. I w the only thing I wish is that we'd see more of him, but then, you know, if you want to see more of Tony Todd, you can just watch the original. Finally, the film that I would like to talk about is Lamb by Valdemir Johansson. I knew from the first time I saw the trailer that I was going to love Lamb. Lamb could have been the worst movie of all time and I would have been obsessed with it regardless. I almost feel, I feel like Lamb was made by an algorithm to specifically align things I adore. We've got folk horror, we've got isolation, we've got bleak beauty and we've got cute shit. Now, I love Lamb's. Um, I'm an Aries, not hugely into astrology, but anything with Aries in it, I'm interested in. I'm an Aries, so I love I love Rams. And as much as I love watching people torn limb from limb in horrific movies, I love anything that involves baby animals. I'm a big, big softy at heart. So when I saw Baby Ada, I just fell in love immediately with her. I'm literally crying, crying. As soon as I saw her on the screen, I was crying. Lamb is a film that has this such a bittersweet melancholy running through it. Have you ever had a dream where you have something unattainable that you know in the dream, you know, it can't fathomably be real in reality. You know, for example, I, I've had dreams where someone I love has come, has been come back from the dead or something I've lost. I know I've lost is back in my possession. And you, in the dream, you know, it can't last. And when you wake up, there's like this deep, profound sorrow. That's, that's what I got from Lamb. Um, Maria knows that this child can't stay with her. You know, her and um, her husband find baby Ada and they know she's not theirs. They know she can't, she can't belong to them. She doesn't belong to them. But for however long they can have her, they cherish every moment with her, knowing that it won't last. And that is just so, so tragic to me. Um, I love that it's a film about nature taking back what rightfully belongs to it. I suppose it would be easy to view this movie as like an animal revenge movie or comment on the meat industry. But I think it's it's more nuanced than that. It's like if you think, for example, like, I don't know, The Farm or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre are very obviously animal revenge movies, but and Lamb is, but it's still, it's, it's more complicated than that. You know, Ada loves, she loves her human parents and she is genuinely traumatized when she is taken from them. It's like she has Stockholm Syndrome. She's developed it. And she's a baby. 
she of course she has she loves who cares for her in real life so so often are baby animals ripped from their mothers you know whether it be for like uh, nefarious purposes like the meat industry or something that we would consider to be a more gentle and loving reason like buying a puppy or a kitten we still forget that animals have these families they have families of their own species we are not their I mean, we are their adopted family, but we are not actually their mothers and fathers. It's a privilege to have them in our home. And we should, but we should not ever forget to respect where they come from. And I, I kind of, that's kind of what I got from Lamb in a way. It's also a film about grief. It's a film about coming to terms with, it's not explicitly stated, but I think it's um, pretty much implied that Maria has lost a child. She obviously hasn't fully dealt with that. So Arda, you know, Arda is this light in a dark world who is just the cutest little thing. Not only my favourite movie of this year, I would say Lamb is one of my favourite movies of all time. It's not for everyone. I know I've seen a lot of people dislike it because it's a slow burn, it's not scary. But to me, Lamb was uh, pretty much a perfect film. I absolutely loved it. I really hope you've enjoyed this rundown of my favorite films this year. Let me know in the comments, do you agree with me? Do, are there any films that you would switch out? Are there any films you really disagree with me with? Well, you know, everyone's got their own opinions and that's what's so beautiful about the horror community is that, you know, one of us can like gore, the other one of us can like slow burn and we'll find somewhere to meet in the middle. Keep an eye out for what's coming in 2022. Like I said, we've got some really cool guests coming and some more exciting things that I will be able to get into once I have more free time. Stay safe and I will speak to you very soon. Bye.